Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Tonight we're going to be in Job chapter 13. And we're going to continue in this, in Job's defense of the accusations that have been um, levied against him by his so-called friends, the ones who came to his side, came to his aid, uh, came to bring comfort and, and uh, words of wisdom, and um, have really not done such a great job, if I might say. So last chapter, we saw Job begin this defense against one of his friends, Zophar. Zophar uh, falsely accused Job that he didn't know God. He didn't know God as well as Zophar did, and that's why he doesn't understand what's going on in his life. And Job went on to affirm that he has just as much understanding of God as any man can. And that uh, we discussed the fact that God really makes it so everyone has the same opportunity to know him. And how awesome is that? It's not, uh, you're not restricted by um, your financial status or your position in the world or even your level of intelligence. God can break through all of those things and he can reveal himself to each and every person um, who ever lived. And God will reveal himself through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the, the teaching and the listening of the Word of God. He's, he's revealed in the pages of Scripture to anyone who's earnestly, sincerely seeking him. In chapter 13, Job goes on and continues this defense against Zophar's accusations. This time, he's defending himself against this accusation that Job is just a blatant sinner and he has no redeeming qualities and, um, and that that's why he's going through the difficulties that he is. Um, Job, in his defense, will reaffirm his, his integrity in order to answer Zophar. So we're going to jump right in, but... Uh, before we do, we just want to go back to Job 11 just to see what this accusation um, was that Zophar levied against Job. And in Job 11, verses 4 and 5, it says, For you have said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. This is Zophar talking. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you. So I think Zophar is saying his is we don't really have evidence against you, but maybe if God speaks, he'll reveal what your true sin is, Job, and then you'll understand why you're going through this difficulty. So God, he, Zophar says, God is going to speak. He's going to set the record straight. You're a sinner, Job. That's all there is to it, and that's why you're suffering the way you are. So not really real pleasant counsel, certainly not uplifting and comforting to Job, but... Job responds. And I think we can take a lesson from that too. When we, you know, we may have friends in our lives or people 
in our lives that when we're going through a difficulty, they come to us. And that's awesome. His friends came right to him. And we may uh, desire their counsel. They may offer it, even if we don't ask for it. But maybe they're trying to bring comfort to us. Um, But we need to sort of take those things and weigh them against what the Scriptures say. And what the Lord is telling us in our, in our time with him in prayer. And if it doesn't line up with the Bible, then we can take their counsel, we can thank them for it, but we can discard it because it's really of no value to us to help us to heal from the suffering that we're going through. So we'll look at Job's response here. In Job 13, verses 1 through 3, it says, Behold, my eye has seen all this, My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. So Job begins here by kind of expressing his disappointment in his friend's counsel. It wasn't helpful, and much of it was uh, either a mischaracterization of who God is, or just an out, outright lie. Job tells them, I see what you're saying. I hear all of your words. But I'm going to go by what God is telling me. He sees me differently than you do. And we should always remember that. Whatever people say about us, whatever, people wanna, whatever advice or counsel people want to give us, again, we want to we hear what God is saying. That's the most important thing to our lives. Job now is calling his friends out um, in this kind of in his response to them. He's going to call them out for the worthless counsel that they gave him. He says in verses four and five, but you forgers of lies, you are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be silent. It would be your wisdom. The Hebrew word here for the word forgers is tafal. And this word can be translated uh, to smear or to paste over. Job's friends were trying to smear his reputation. They were trying to throw accusations against Job and hoping that they would stick. You know, we can defend ourselves against people who might spread lies about us or maybe misrepresent us in some way. But we've got to make sure that we don't become overly bitter against them or overly frustrated and that's a tough thing to balance i think at times we hear job's response to his friends and we can kind of hear that bitterness in in his words Uh, we need to be careful that we don't go go there and you know listen it's tough when people are saying things against you maybe they're lies maybe they're half truths Um, our initial response is to defend yourself against that is to um is to get vengeance maybe but we need to be careful that we don't go too far you know we've got to bring it to god allow god to to defend us and to vindicate us um we see job's frustration come out sometimes he calls them here worthless physicians now not you know i think about it in the context of you know going to a doctor and maybe getting a wrong diagnosis and, and then him treating you for something that isn't going to help you. 
Um, we've probably all experienced that to some degree or another. You know, going to a doctor for some ailment or condition and they incorrectly diagnose us and then they treat us for something, but it, it's not helping what's, what's really the pro- what, what the problem is. It might actually even make matters worse. And I think that's what happened with Job's friends. You know, they were... They, they diagnosed the problem incorrectly and now they're trying to throw this treatment at him that's not going to help. It's actually making things worse for Job. And Job tells them here in, uh, in verse 5, Oh, that you would be silent. It would be your wisdom. He says, basically, the best counsel that, the be- the best counsel that you guys ever gave me was when you said nothing. And you remember in Job 2, verse 13, this was beautiful, really, when you think about it. Job just suffered all this loss, and his friends came running to his, to his side. And look what it says here in verse 13 of chapter 2. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Job says, Guys, just remember when you first came to me and you sat with me those seven days? You didn't say a word. That, that would be wisdom in, in my ears if you would just go back and do that. Because so far, every word that's come out of your mouth is really, it hasn't been much comfort to me. It hasn't really helped with the situation I find myself in. So going on here in, in uh, verses eight, 6 through 8, Job now asks a series of rhetorical questions. And these are does, kind of designed to strengthen his position against his friends. In his defense, to strengthen his position against them and their, uh, and their useless counsel. So he goes on here in verses 6 through 8, and he says, Now hear my reasoning and heed the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? So he asks them, hey guys, are you going to continue to misrepresent God to me? What they said about God and how he relates to mankind and, and especially going through difficulties or trials, it was way too narrow. You know, they really put God in a box and they said, well, God is always this way. And Job, this this is why you're going through your difficulties, because God always responds in this way to what you're going through. And that's not necessarily true. And I love that of God, that he's an intimate, personal God, that he may he may deal with your situation much differently than he will with somebody else. You can't put God in a box that way. It's a personal thing. It's a personal relationship. You know, they thought they knew God's ways and that he would never change from the one way that they thought God would, would deal with this particular situation. But we know that we can't fully understand all of God's ways. And again, he may... Even in your life, one time he may decide to deal with something in one way and then the next time something completely different because he knows you best. 
He knows at what point in your life you can handle uh, maybe harshness or maybe you need more sensitivity. God knows. And Zophar's friends didn't understand that. Or they did and they, and they were misrepresenting God. See, God's ways are many times beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding. And because of that, we need to take it on faith that he knows what he's doing in our lives. We just need to do that. Because we won't necessarily understand everything that happens in our lives. We can't understand what God is doing in the midst of this crisis that we find ourselves in right now. This global pandemic that's changed everything kind of in our lives. We don't understand maybe what God's doing behind the scenes, right? But we can continue to believe that he has everything under control. And if we truly believe that as believers, we can then bring that hope to others who might be hopeless right now going through this difficult time that we all find ourselves in. Mark Hitchcock, who's a well-respected Bible and prophecy scholar, um, has written many books on prophecy. He just wrote a book a few weeks ago on this particular situation. It's called The Corona Crisis, Plagues, Pandemics, and the Coming Apocalypse. And he puts this global crisis in perspective as it relates to us maybe sometimes presuming what God is doing in the midst of something. And um, if you want a good read, it's probably take you about six hours to go through the whole book. I'm about halfway through it. Um, it's current right now, and it's for believers. Um, but he writes here in one of, the, one of the chapters, he says, It's impossible for us to know all the reasons God allows the outbreak of deadly plagues. But one thing is sure. God graciously uses them to wake and shake people, to grab their attention, and to call them to turn their backs on self-sufficiency and trust in him. Coronavirus is no exception. It's a major wake-up call, maybe a final wake-up call. So we have to get to a point, believers, as uh, that we understand that we won't know everything that God is doing. We won't understand every reason for everything that happens, but to take it on faith that God is in charge, that God is in control, and that we can then bring that, that hope to others. You know, God's friends spoke deceitfully about God. They mischaracterized and misrepresented God. And a lot of people might be doing that today, mischaracterizing God, blaming God even for what's going on in the world. We need to be able to give a, a hopeful message and correctly characterize who God is to people. In verses 9 through 12, Job goes on with this defense and he says, he tells his friends that God is going to have the final say. 
God is going to have the final say, not you, not you guys. So he goes on in verse 9 through 12. Will it be well when he searches you out? Or can you mock him as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. Will not his excellence make you afraid and the dread of him fall upon you? Your platitudes of prov- are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. So Job is here telling his friends that God judges each of us on our response to him, not on what others say about us. We, we are going to stand before God and either as an unbeliever for judgment or as a believer, we stand before that judgment seat of Christ. That he will look at us and see what we've done, what our motives were, and then there'll be rewards or not based on those things. So every single person who ever lived is going to stand before God. Second Corinthians 5.10 tells us, for believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So this is not a, a judgment seat of, of your eternal salvation. This is for believers. Christian, what are you doing with what God has given you during this time? Will you look back at this three months, maybe six months, maybe a year, of kind of a new normal, which is a term I'm growing to dislike more and more every day. But will you look back at this and say, and, and say I was faithful in that, in that time. In the most difficult time that many people have seen in their whole life, I was faithful. Will you be able to look back and say that? Or will you have regrets? Will you have regrets? You see, it, when we stand before Christ, we're going to be rewarded or not for the things we did with what God has put before us. He says in verse 12, your platitudes are proverbs of ashes, your defenses are defenses of clay. He goes on to tell them that their accusations against him are a lot of words, but not much substance. You know, his friends thought that they were giving him some profound statements of truth and they were really only empty words. No redeeming qualities, no comfort, no uh, sense of, uh, of justice, nothing that would help Job heal from what he was going through. And that they would fall apart on the first examination of their validity. You know, effective counseling, I find doesn't consist of many words. Effective counseling, a lot of it is listening to people. You know, the counselor, if the counselor um, is wise, he'll say very little. And he'll just listen. And then he'll, and if it's a, if, if it's a pastor or an elder or a, a Christian brother or sister, they're going to seek the Lord before they open their mouths and try to give you some type of counsel or advice. Seeking the truth, seeking the Lord. That's what you want to give to people when they, 
when they're seeking counsel from you, you want to give them what the Lord would have you give them. Then in verses 13 through 15, Job declares his faith and trust in God's fairness and justice. Job tells his friends, their words are not helping. And they're not even an accurate examination of Job's situation. It says in verse 13 through 15, Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then let come on, come on me what may. Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. So Job is asking his friends again here, be quiet for a moment. Listen to what I have to say. Listen to my defense. Listen to what I have to say to defend my integrity, but not based on what I see in myself, but what God's assessment of me is. Remember early on in this book, we saw God's assessment of Job, that he was a righteous man. His friends didn't hear that conversation that God had with Satan as this whole thing was getting set up. But Job knows that God has a different way of looking at him. He says, I'll take my chances with God. I'll believe that he's just in his evaluation of who I am. And sometimes we just need to allow God to vindicate us, don't we? Isn't that the best way to get vindication? Something that Job says here um, in verse 15 is actually an amazing statement. It's a profound statement. Maybe one of the most important verses in all of Scripture because it sets a standard here for our trust in God. And it sets the standard at a very high level. You see, it's easy to trust God, right, when everything is going well. When your business is doing well and your finances are in order and your health is, is perfect and, you know, everything's just going hunky-dory. It's easy to trust God in that. But when, how about when we feel like we're being slain by God? How about when we feel like we're dejected and we're down and out? How about when our health starts to fail and our finances go away and we lose our job and our family is in disarray? How about those times? But that's the measure of a true believer, somebody who really trusts in the Lord. Because anyone can trust in the Lord when everything's going well, right? I love the fact that Charles Spurgeon got an entire sermon out of one half of verse 15. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Listen to one of his points in this sermon And it's one of the most profound things that you can ever hear as a Christian. 
He says, on that, on, those, on that half of verse, he says, there are three things in the text. A terrible supposition, though he slay me. A noble resolution, yet will I trust him. And thirdly, a secret appropriateness. The last will require a little looking into, but I hope to make it clear that there is a great appropriateness in our trusting God while he's slaying us. The two things go well together, though it may not so appear. The terrible supposition before us is inclusive of all possible ills. Though he slay me, He means that if every form of evil up to actual death should come upon him, yet he would trust in God. Though he should lose all that he had in flock or field, in purse or portion, yet he would trust. At last the worst news of all came, for all his children were taken away at a stroke. All was gone. For his wife was as good as lost also since she went over to the enemy and said, curse God and and die. Spurgeon goes on, well saith Job, though my troubles have left me bare of all but life, though nothing remains to me but this dunghill and this broken potsherd for which I scrape my sores, yet I will trust in the Lord. Oh, it was bravely said. It takes courage to trust the Lord in the middle of the most difficult time of your life. Doesn't it? It takes real courage. Are we able to do that? Those are questions that we really need to search ourselves and find out. Are we able to trust God in the midst of our suffering? Can we honestly say that if he took everything away, we would continue to trust in his goodness? We're not going to answer that question tonight. That's something that each of us has to kind of wrestle with in our own hearts, in our souls. Job continues on in his defense here, and he challenges his friends to dispute his conclusions. In verses 16 through 19, it says, He he also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come before him. Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See now, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Who is he who will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. So again, Job here says, I'm going to put my life and my reputation in God's hands and not in your hands, my so-called friends, and your misguided appraisal of who I am. He believes that his relationship with the Lord will will withstand cross-examination. Now, I don't know if that, you know, we might consider that arrogant. Or some might consider that presumptuous of God. But I think it's Job's experience with God's hand upon his life. Before 
the tragedy occurred and even through this, that he believes that God will exonerate him, that he believes that God will will have his back no matter what. When we're secure in our relationship with the Lord, we can rightly say that we are his and we can accept the bad and the good that come into our lives because we know that if God is allowing it, then there's a greater purpose behind it. This is called the assurance of salvation. As believers, God wants us to have that. He desires for us to have an assurance of our salvation. Some churches teach, some denominations teach that you can't have assurance of salvation. Some teach that that's presumptuous, that you can know that you're saved. And what happens in those those cases is then you never know. You never know if you've done enough. You never know if one sin is gonna is gonna lose you're gonna lose your salvation. You never know. You're constantly living in fear and doubt and worry. But in first John five thirteen, I think it kind of says it right here. John writes, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, not that you may think, not that you may guess, not that you may hope, but that you may know. Did you put your faith and trust in Christ? Did you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord? Then you can know you have eternal life. And Job was confident, not in his own ability. He was confident in the fact that God never goes back on his word. When we are his, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit. That's a guarantee That's assurance. He will not go back on his word. We're not being presumptuous. We're giving him all the glory because of that. God wants us to have assurance so we don't wonder. We don't go through the day worrying every day if we're saved. It allows us to kind of live in in confidence, and also rest. Rest in what he's done. Because some of those denominations that say it's presumptuous, they tell you that it's got to be good works and it's got to be giving a certain amount of money to the church. And you never know if you've given enough and you never know if you've worked enough. I'm tired just talking about it. You never rest. You never rest. God wants us to rest in him. Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. We rest in him because the work is finished. He did it on the cross. Amen? Amen. So now Job kind of switches here as we get towards the end of this chapter. He switches and he takes his defense directly to God. Directly to God. And he says in verses 20 to 22, 
only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide myself from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not the dread of you make me afraid. Those are the two things. Then call and I will answer or let me speak and then you respond to me. So he's putting two requests out there before the Lord. First, he's saying, God, don't leave me or forsake me. God, I would rather have the comfort of your presence, even if that means suffering, than have you withdraw your hand from me, Lord. Sometimes in our grief, we make the choice, right, to separate ourselves from God. Sometimes in our sin, we make the choice to be estranged from God. But he's always right there. He's always right there. Job is saying, just don't don't withdraw from me, Lord. I remember, this is kind of a change of heart from what Job said just a couple of chapters ago. In chapter 7, his pain was much more intense, much more fresh. And he, he wished that God would leave him alone. Remember in verse 16 of chapter 7, Job says, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, for my days are but a breath. Well, he's grown a little bit, I think, since, since then. He's come to an understanding that, you know, you may feel God's heavy hand upon you. Maybe you're going through a difficult time, but it's so much better that he's with you when you're going through that time than you're left alone to try to deal with it on your own. It's much better. But God didn't leave him. And Job said, leave me alone. God didn't leave him. He remained by Job's side. And even though there were times, and there will, will be times as we go forward, that Job doesn't sense God's presence in his life because of his grief, uh, he's still there. He's still there. We need to be careful that we don't allow our suffering or our grief or our sin to separate us from the Lord, that we become so distressed by what's going on in our lives that we don't want God in our lives. That's a dangerous place to be. And that's when you need to reach out for good counsel and ask friends, brothers or sisters from the body of Christ to come alongside you and open up to them and tell them what you're going through. Tell them you're having a difficult time. Let them guide you back to that relationship with the Lord. A good friend will tell you, don't isolate yourself. Don't separate yourself. It's not good. It's not good for you. The other request Job made of God is that he will allow Job to restore the relationship with God without this sense of guilt or fear. And sometimes I think that we, either when we have a, we're going through a really difficult time or maybe we're, um, you know, we, we've sinned and we feel like we can't go back to God. 
You know, we're either we're afraid that he's going to reject us or we're guilty because of what, what we've done. But Job here is asking God to be gracious with him as he kind of tries to figure this whole thing out. You know, it may take us a while as human beings to figure these things out. We don't always turn around in, in, a, in a moment's notice, you know. It takes us time. We're stubborn sometimes, and sometimes we just need to work through things. So we seek God for his graciousness in that and his patience. He's long-suffering, so he will be. He will be gracious. Now Job here in the last few verses um, is actually asking God, requesting a hearing, some, uh, so to speak, to determine his guilt or his innocence. So in verses 23 through 28, it says, How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Will you frighten a leaf to and fro? Will you pursue dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. So, yeah, Job has maintained his innocence all along. But now he's kind of willing to concede that maybe God has something against him. Maybe God sees something in his life that he doesn't see in his own life. And, you know, and when, we, when we take that mirror and look at ourselves, we don't always look as ugly as our sin um, is. And so we don't always recognize it. So Job is in this position here where he's maintained his integrity, he's maintained his innocence all along, but now he's saying, God, if you have something against me, just tell me what it is. And I think this is, again, pretty courageous of Job, that, you know, his friends certainly told him he was guilty. They didn't hold back from, from tossing all these accusations against him. And he says, okay, you know, I'm not going to take their word for it necessarily, but God, what do you have to say? Are they right? Is there something that they're saying that I need to be heeding? I think of the psalmist in Psalm 139, and if you want to know a real intimate psalm to read, Psalm 139 just shows you that personal, intimate relationship that God has with us. But he says in verse 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalmist here is asking God to show him his sin. Are we willing to ask God to show us our sin? This is where really our relationship with the Lord becomes, becomes real. As J. Vernon McGee would say, when the rubber hits the road, this is it. You know, we may be willing to accept all the blessings from God, but are we equally willing to receive the chastisement or the rebuke from God. 
Again, a lot of questions tonight for us to think about. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 tells us about that intimacy that, of, of relationship that God has with us. It says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. We, we know that when, our, when we are his, we, we'll admit it, that he'll correct us when we're going the wrong way. Just as a loving parent corrects the child when they're going toward danger, God will do that. And Job is, is saying, God, correct me if I need to be corrected. Show me where I may have gone off the track. I think we need to do that every once in a while, probably daily. Just ask God, God, I, I really don't, I don't necessarily see anything, but you, you look and you tell me. And if there's something there, I repent of that. I repent of that. Verses 24 through 27, Job expresses the innermost feelings that God might, might have something against him. Or else maybe he wouldn't be suffering. You know, it might be a result of the pounding he's been getting all this time from his friends. Or just the fact that Job was open to the possibility that he may have done something to deserve his troubles. But I don't think that's the way God works. I don't think that's the way God works. And I think when we, as we examine the character of God through this book and through the entirety of the Scriptures, we know that that's, God is not a vindictive God like that. He doesn't look at us like that, looking to get even with us for something that we've done against Him. If we sin, we confess, He's faithful to, to forgive us. And we move on and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? The Bible says, so we move on in our relationship. You know, that kind of that attitude or that thought process that, you know, when I'm going through a difficult time or when, you know, when there's tragedy that strikes or calamity that strikes, then there's some great sin that must be the cause of that. That's, a, that's kind of a mindset of a lot of people, some believers and some non-believers, I want to quote one more time from March Hitchcock's new book because it's just, it's so current and so, um, so uh, interesting as we go through this that I'm seeing some of the things he's talking about here. He says, when disaster strikes, we all have an initial reaction, an immediate response or a gut feeling. Often it's shock, Sympathy, sorrow, or sadness, or it may be confusion or fear for our own safety, or we may be moved to prayer for those affected. But one frequent response is secretly wondering if the calamity resulted from sin in the lives of the victims. It happens every time tragedy strikes. Someone always brings up the divine judgment angle. Now, I've heard it about this. I heard it about 9-11. I heard it about every calamity that I've seen in my lifetime. That God is, there's, 
must be judging those people for something. And then they'll try to pull some scripture out and apply it to the situation. Mark Hitchcock says it's nothing new. It's nothing new. So we see it sometimes with this, right? With, this, with the coronavirus situation. Just remember that as Job's friends mischaracterized God, we don't want to do that ourselves. We want to have a right understanding of God's nature, of his goodness and of his grace. And yes, his justice, absolutely. He can't do anything but be just. We spoke, we, we sang today a couple of songs about his holiness. So we understand God's necessity for justice. But he doesn't, he doesn't dole it out like we would as sinful human beings. He, he does it in his perfect way, according to his perfect plan, and with a perfect purpose behind everything he does. You know, the lessons in this chapter... I think can apply directly to what we're going through as a culture. To what we're going through as a church and what we're going through as individual believers. As long as we continue to call out to God in our suffering, He will continue to answer. And we may not ever know exactly why certain things happen. But we need to be able to take comfort in the knowledge that whatever's going on, God is not surprised by any of it. And he's completely in charge. And he has a plan that he wants to fulfill in it all, in each of our lives. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.